The next investigator I met with was Dr. Ronald Bukowski, and before presenting his patients, I asked him to comment on what new systemic agents might soon become available in clinical practice. There's a series of new drugs that have been developed that are small molecules that inhibit kinases, and the early members of this group were sunitinib and serafinib, and they have found a home in the treatment of advanced kidney cancer. Sunitinib in the patient with untreated disease is now considered a standard of care, and serafinib in the cytokine refractory patient. There's been an effort to develop a second-generation kinase inhibitors, and there really are two of them right now that are in large-scale clinical trials. The first is the drug called pizopinib, and it's a small molecule inhibitor of the VEGF receptors, and it is very similar to sunitinib, but thought to perhaps be a little bit different in that it may have fewer off-target effects. And so the drug is interesting from the perspective of the fact that it may have an improved toxicity profile. So the drug's been studied in some detail over the past three to four years. The first study was put forward two years ago at ASCO by my colleague Tom Hudson, and it was what's called a randomized discontinuation trial of this oral agent, which is administered daily in patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma. The study was stopped early because the drug was so useful that they really couldn't do a randomized discontinuation approach, so you really wouldn't want to stop a patient who was benefiting. They did find that in a cohort of somewhere around 200 patients that there indeed was a very respectable regression rate measured in the range of about 31% and that the progression-free survival with this drug in these patients was somewhere around 11 months. So that data suggests that it may be the equivalent of sunitinib as a treatment, and if indeed it has less toxicity, then it's going to be useful. The pivotal study that we're waiting to hear is one that is a randomized study from Europe predominantly in patients who have had no prior therapy and it was looking at pizopinib as a treatment of these individuals. And I believe that these individuals may have had cytokine therapy in the past. This study is randomized. It has well over 400 patients, and it will sort of be the pivotal trial which will allow this drug to be submitted to the FDA for approval for treatment of a patient with advanced renal cell carcinoma. What's it randomized against? I believe it's a placebo. And what about the dose schedule and side effects and toxicity of the agent, and particularly how it compares indirectly to sunitinib? So that's the very interesting issue. The toxicity appears to be similar in terms of the frequency of hypertension. Somewhere in the range of 20 to 30% of patients get hypertension. It appears to have less in the way of hematologic toxicities. The issue will be fatigue and some of these other off-target effects, such as hypothyroidism, cardiovascular effects, and so on. And it may well have a better toxicity profile than sunitinib in that particular setting. It's going to be very difficult unless one compares them directly. Is that going to be done? That is underway right now. There's a very large study that will compare the treatment with sunitinib versus pizopinib in the untreated patient. The study will look for non-inferiority, and it will also look at whether, indeed, this drug can be demonstrated in a really randomized, controlled setting 
to have less toxicity or better side effect profile than sunitinib. So, What's the dose and schedule? The schedule is daily as compared to sunitinib, which is an intermittent schedule. So sunitinib is once daily for four weeks with a two-week break, whereas pazopinib is going to be a daily administration. I believe it's twice daily on a continuous basis. And so it's a little different schedule that has been developed for this particular drug. Now, has this been looked at in patients who've had progressive disease on sunitinib? Not as yet. Certainly, that's another area of interest. But as far as I'm aware, there's been no attempt to target that particular drug. Now, one other study, Neil, that you should be aware of, and that's the other second generation, if you will, kinase inhibitor that's out there is the excitinib study. Right. Excitinib is perhaps a bit more powerful, if you will, in its IC50s and ability to inhibit the VEGF receptors and may have a better toxicity profile. It's a drug that's also administered continuously. Its dosing is five milligrams twice daily. And it's been studied in some phase two designs in patients who've had prior therapy, for example, patients who've had bevacizumab or biocytokines. And it was found to have a regression rate well in excess of 40%. It is being looked at right now in patients who failed sunitinib. So when a patient has had sunitinib and his disease starts to progress, he then will be randomized to receive excitinib as one treatment arm. The second treatment arm is serafinib. So the comparator will be serafinib under the assumption that there have been some data that suggests serafinib is being used in that setting, but it seems that excitinib is going to be the far superior. Now, this is a very large randomized trial. It's a pivotal study. And if indeed it shows what we all expected, that that is excitinib as a relatively respectable regression rate and progression-free survival in this population, probably in the range of seven to nine months, it will likely be an approvable drug. So these are two new drugs. Pazopinib probably much closer to the issue of being approved by the FDA, whereas excitinib is probably several years off. So if either one of these agents do become approved, what do you think the initial indication would be? Well, it's very hard to say without seeing the actual data on pazopinib, but the way the study was constructed, it looks like the indication would likely be advanced renal cell carcinoma and not necessarily restricted to any subset of patients or patients with prior therapy failure and so on. Any other new agents that you think maybe are going to become clinically available over the next couple of years? Well, I think that later this year, we assume that bevacizumab will be labeled. Now, it's available now, but there is some concern about its utilization because of the lack of regulatory approval. And it would seem that later this year, probably the third or fourth quarter, that the FDA will hopefully issue a positive guidance on this particular drug. And it's likely to be in combination with interferon. Now, I don't see anything beyond these three drugs over the next several years, although there's one other agent that's less far along, and I believe it's called AVI951. And it's another kinase inhibitor that has a low IC54 VEGF receptors, and it's being tested predominantly in Europe. There's been very little in the United States with it, and it's really undergoing large-scale trials in Europe, mostly in the Eastern Bloc. And We heard some data at the recent GU-ASCO meeting in Orlando regarding this particular drug, showing that it has a very high regression rate. One of the issues has been its toxicity profile because of the very low IC50 that it has for these receptors. Now, this drug is likely to go into phase three trials here in the next year or so. The issue will be the design of the phase three trial and what exactly group this drug would be designed for. So it's for the future. It really doesn't have a name yet. It's mostly a number. 
Getting back to the issue of bevacizumab, if it is approved, where do you think it's going to be used in the algorithm and how? And for that matter, is it being even used right now? It is being used right now. The frequency of use is probably about 10% of patients get bevacizumab. I believe there's a lot of hesitancy among my colleagues in the U.S. to use bevacizumab if it's going to be used in combination with interferon because of the toxicity that interferon is associated with. And so it will be interesting to see how this develops. Now, clearly the label will be for patients who have advanced renal cell carcinoma, no previous therapy. And the data that we've seen so far really suggests that the combination is highly active and some of the data approaches what's seen with sunitinib in terms of frequency of response and progression-free survival. Now, there is a lot of experience using bevacizumab out in the community right now, so it's only a matter of time till people start to wonder whether indeed it may be easier to use an intravenous drug for some patients rather than an oral agent. And certainly there are reimbursement issues that come into play here because some of the patients find it quite difficult to provide copays for their drugs like sunitinib and such, and an intravenous drug that's fully covered may be something that'll be very desirable. From the perspective of efficacy, the two regimens, sunitinib or bevacizumab and interferon, seem fairly similar. We don't have any comparators right now in progress, no studies that are being planned to look at this, although there's a very small phase two randomized trial in France that is at least asking this in a very preliminary way. So I don't have a crystal ball, and I can't suggest who's going to use bevacizumab and interferon in comparison to sunitinib, because once you start with a treatment regimen, you tend to use that over a period of time because you become accustomed to it, you understand the toxicities, you understand what's expected. However, there may well be patients that bevacizumab and interferon will fit, and there's likely going to be a lot of interest in starting the combination and then rapidly, if the patient's having side effects, decreasing the dose of interferon. So these are issues that really we need to see how they develop over the next year or so. But I think it will be positioned for the patient who's had no prior therapy, and it will be positioned as a combination in that space. Now, as you mentioned, oncologists in practice have a lot of experience with bevacizumab, and one of the things that's clearly fleshed out is when it's used alone, for example, in many situations you might get chemo bevacizumab and continue with the bevacizumab alone. One of the notable things is relative lack of side effects and pretty good quality of life. And I'm curious if we could do a randomized trial comparing sunitinib to bevacizumab alone, to bevacizumab interferon, what do you think we'd see in terms of efficacy and sort of quality of life in the three arms? So at least if I, and all I could do is utilize data that I'm aware of with the three approaches you mentioned, I would think that sunitinib would have the highest regression rate. I would think that the regression rate with the combination of bevacizumab and interferon would be respectable, probably in the range of 25 to 30%, and that for these two approaches, the progression-free survivals would likely be very similar. The bevacizumab alone arm would likely have a lower response rate. We've seen that. It's going to be somewhere around 10% in untreated patients. Now, whether the progression-free survival will be the same remains to be seen. I think probably what you alluded to was that individuals may well start with a combination and continue with bevacizumab alone, sort of in the vein of giving chemotherapy plus bevacizumab and continuing maintenance with Bev. So I think the outcomes for those two approaches, sunitinib or the combination approach, may well be very similar. And 
you know, oncologists are sometimes driven by their previous experience with drugs and what they've seen. And you're absolutely right. Bevacizumab alone is the best tolerated of all these agents that we've talked about today. So it's going to be a very desirable thing to introduce into therapy. The real issue will be to be certain we don't compromise efficacy at this point. What about bevacizumab in terms of the adjuvant setting and trials? Obviously, serafinib and sunitinib are being looked at. Is there any discussion or interest in looking at Bev? The initiation of a bevacizumab trial in the adjuvant setting would be a very large undertaking, and I think probably until we have a sense of whether these agents actually have some utility in that area, it's not likely to happen. I don't believe Genetech is going to jump ahead with studies in that setting, and I don't know that the cooperative groups are going to do any additional adjuvant trials until we have understood the full impact of what we have done with the study that the ECOG is doing and There's two studies in Europe. One, the serafinib study, is going to take another 10 years to know anything about. The other study, which may have an earlier endpoint, will be the S-TRAC study, in which sunitinib is being used in what are termed high-risk patients, patients who have much higher likelihood of developing disease recurrence. And that study is a smaller trial, a two-arm study, and it may have some answers sooner. But I don't believe we're going to jump again into the adjuvant space until we have some information regarding what's happened with these three trials. And I guess certainly renal cell cancer is very different than colon cancer, but we hopefully are going to see the results of the adjuvant bevacizumab colon trial soon. I mean, maybe even ASCO. And I guess even though, again, they're different tumors, if for some reason that turns out to be a positive study, I guess it might increase the interest in that. Right. I forgot about that. That's exactly right, because after having some discussions recently with the owners of that drug, they really were very interested in what the result's going to be with the colon cancer study. And if it shows a positive result, well, then the impetus or the interest in pursuing this drug in other diseases, especially one like renal cancer, would be pretty high. And I think we have to remember that once the ECOG study closes in the United States, there will be room for another adjuvant trial to be initiated. And, you know, if you have one positive study, although it is in another disease, it's not inconceivable that it would be looked at very favorably. I think we just have to wait and see. So we've chatted a little bit about some of the new agents and new potential indications. Any new data on the agents that we have been taking a real good look at the last few years that are maybe important for docs to know about in practice? Anything new on, for example, sunitinib or some of the other agents, temsorolinus, serafinib? So I think what we've all been doing is trying to refine our understanding of what patients benefit from these agents and are there any biomarkers that can be utilized to help us select individuals for the appropriate drug or drugs. At the present time, we still don't have a biomarker. All of our selections are made on clinical criteria. It would be nice if we had a laboratory test such as, for example, VEGF levels in the plasma or a tissue-based assay that would define a marker in the tumor. But as of this point in time, we still have not reached that juncture. And it probably reflects that this is a complex system, that it's not a single target that we're affecting, that a drug like sunitinib has multiple effects on endothelial cells and tumors, and therefore it's a complex issue. So I don't believe anybody has biomarker data at this point in time that is going to be useful. On the other hand, we've all tried to look at how we can refine our treatments based on some of the data in some of the larger scale clinical trials, such as age. Is age an important issue? Can we use age as a way to define 
which group should be treated or which group should not be treated, or does the prognostic factor approach from the Memorial Sloan Kettering group, can we use that to help us refine our treatment approaches? And that's all been looked at, and much of that data is out there and available, and I don't know that we have any more information right now that helps us define treatment. I think one of the areas that we were all concerned about has been cardiovascular toxicity, and this is something that has been looked at very carefully, especially in the adjuvant trial that's ongoing right now. It occurs. It probably, in most hands, appears to have an acceptable frequency, and especially if one is aware that it can develop. I don't know that, short of saying a patient who has a history of a cardiovascular event within the past 6 to 12 months would best be served by not being treated with one of these kinase inhibitors. I don't know that we have any more information on this particular subset of patients. And so that's a long answer to your question. So I don't know that we have any more data right now except clinical data, which we've always talked about, that helps us select patients for various treatments. What would you estimate? Obviously, it's going to change based on who the patient is, their age, et cetera. But globally, overall, what would you say the risk of cardiac toxicity is? For sunitinib, it appears to be in the range of 1% to 2%. And for serafinib, probably less than 1%. So that's pretty low. I mean, it's not a high-risk range. It also is going to depend on how you select patients. And these were individuals in clinical trials. If you go to that access programs where selection criteria are a lot looser, you may see an increase in that. Although in both of the extended access programs, the sunitinib and the serafinib programs, both of which contain you know large numbers of patients, 3,000 and 5,000 patients, we have not been made aware of increased cardiac toxicity in both of those particular studies. And so even where selection criteria have been relaxed, that's not happened. There have been a few institutions that have been very interested in this particular area and have tried to look at some of the cardiac toxicities produced by these two drugs, just sunitinib and serafinib, and their frequency of detection appears to be somewhat higher. Now, what's of interest is that the current adjuvant trial, the first 600 patients entered into the study have been looked at in detail for the effects on ejection fraction of the two agents and the placebo. And there's an early stopping rule put into place dependent upon the effect on ejection fraction in the various groups. And that is really what's going to be looked at here in the very near future. I think that data is just about ready to be looked at. So this question may well be answered in a much better fashion in a population of patients who are on the adjuvant trial who are receiving either sunitinib, serafinib, or a placebo, and that's going to be probably the best way to make some judgments about the relative cardiac effects of these agents. And up to now, the presentation's been what, heart failure? For the toxicity? Yeah. Yeah, it's either been heart failure or myocardial infarction. Any speculations about mechanisms of how this might occur? Nothing that I'm aware of, nothing new that sheds any light on this particular process. Not related to the hypertension? Well, that's one of the risk factors. There were three risk factors put forward for the development of cardiac toxicity. The group at MD Anderson reviewed a large number of patients at their institution for the development of cardiac events, came up with a percentage of somewhere around 3%. And they found that hypertension, a previous history of heart disease, and a previous history of exposure to cardiac toxic drugs, which is doxorubicin, all were risk factors for developing this kind of a process. Now, that's a retrospective study, but certainly it does help us at least in terms of trying to understand the process. So let's go through some of the patients that you brought to present today. And I thought the 78-year-old man was pretty interesting. Can you talk about him? 
So he's a gentleman who is not that unusual to be seen in a clinic. He's an elderly gentleman. He's 78, but a relatively good 78. He has no real comorbid features. And he had a renal tumor removed at the age of 70. It was a clear cell cancer. And it was about a six centimeter tumor. No lymph nodes were involved. And he did quite well following his surgery and was followed periodically over the next eight years. He came back with some symptoms, a little bit of fatigue and some bone pain. And studies at that point demonstrated what appeared to be involvement by malignancy in the lungs with pulmonary nodules on a CAT scan, liver nodules, as well as a positive bone scan. His disease-free interval was about eight years since his primary tumor was removed, and he'd had no prior systemic therapy for the illness. He had no adjuvant therapy, of course, because there isn't any for this particular type of setting. And he now presents with some symptoms, mild symptoms at best. He's still relatively mobile. And he has what one would classically define as a rather indolent presentation for his recurrence, and that is eight years since his original diagnosis. So the first thing you think about in a patient like this is, well, you know, be sure of the diagnosis, do the appropriate biopsies to confirm recurrence and make certain that it's not a different cancer because you always have this eight-year interval to be concerned about and certainly this age of an individual can develop a second malignancy without a doubt. And in a patient like this, you would take the approach to biopsy the most easily accessible tumor. Now, the pulmonary nodules were small. They were one to one and a half centimeters, and that puts them in a situation where a needle biopsy may be positive, but then again, it may well be negative. The liver nodules were somewhat larger. They were two to two and a half centimeters, and they certainly were accessible to biopsy. And the bone lesions were small. They were lytic, but the easiest thing to biopsy in this case was the liver lesion. And it was biopsied percutaneously under cat scan guidance, and it showed indeed a histology that was considered compatible with his previous renal cancer, and that is a clear cell tumor. The Furman grade of his original tumor was two. It's a low-grade tumor, and that's the kind of tumor that most generally behaves like this with a long disease-free interval and a long time before recurrence. And so you're faced with this fellow trying to decide what should we do. 78 years old, some symptoms, the amount of disease present is moderate, and his risk category based on the fact he had this long disease-free interval but has symptoms and such would be intermediate risk. So he's not a poor risk patient. He's an intermediate risk patient. It's the most common type that you see 60 to 70% of patients have this presentation right now. So what should you do for a 78-year-old patient? Should you say, gee, he's 78. He's not feeling all that badly. He's still active and able to carry on normal activity. Should we delay anything? Should we just observe this man for a while and try to see what the pace of his illness is going to be? Because it's been eight years since his original cancer, and many individuals at this age are more than happy to take that kind of an approach. And I think that has to be balanced against the effects of his cancer right now. For example, if his pain, if his bone pain is increasingly severe, or if he has skeletal areas affected that are in the spine, for example, I think one might be a bit more aggressive, especially if they're causing pain. In his case, he had mainly ribs that were positive, and it was a decision that, you know, treat or not treat at this point in time. In terms of treatment, what would be the options that you would be thinking about? So, 78 years old, is a 78-year-old patient going to tolerate these kinds of treatments? That's something we have very little information about, I should say, until just recently. There have been two attempts to sort of fill this gap, if you will, 
The first attempt was based on the target study, the serafinib trial, in which over 900 patients were treated. Now, these patients were a little bit different than this individual. They were patients who'd had prior interferon or IL-2, but we did look back at the data and ask the question, what happens to the elderly patient? Elderly, you can define in various ways. We first defined it as over 65 or less than 65 years of age. We then asked the question in a little different sense, saying that, well, perhaps that's not elderly. Perhaps we should increase the number to 70. So we looked at patients who were more than 70 or less than 70 years old and asked the question, what was their outcome in terms of clinical efficacy and also toxicity? Did the group of patients have more side effects than the younger group? And the answer was surprising in that the older patient, over 70, appeared to do as well, and even some instances appeared to have better outcomes than the younger patients. Their progression-free survivals were equivalent with serafinib. Their toxicities did not appear to be any worse than the younger age group. And when we looked at the quality of life data that we had, there didn't appear to be any large discrepancies between the older individual and the younger individual. Now, the one caveat here is that the group over 70 only comprised about, oh, let's say about 110 patients in contrast to the younger patient, which was well over 700 patients. And so we were dealing with a small subset. And that's probably the other reason that we didn't even go higher, because once you get to 75 and greater, those numbers become increasingly small. So the 70 cutoff seemed reasonable. But based on that data, the older patient appeared to tolerate treatment and appeared to do as well as the younger patient and didn't appear to have any increased morbidity from the treatment. The other study that looked at this in a little bit less detail, it's not been published, but it certainly is available to people, and that is the Tim Serlimus trial. And Tim Serlimus was compared to interferon in a group of patients who had poor risk features to their disease. This data has been sort of looked at slightly differently. They've taken patients who were over 65 or under 65 and asked what happened with either Tim Serlimus or interferon to these two groups. And the numbers are slightly smaller than in a target study, but the outcome of the data was that in the older patients, there appeared to be no diminution of effect with regard to Tim Serlimus, although it wasn't as significant as it was before. They didn't appear to have any more toxicity in the group that was over 65. And the data sort of collectively suggests that you can approach an older patient, whether it's with an oral agent, such as a kinase inhibitor, or an intravenous drug, such as Tim Serlimus, that the older patient does tolerate this treatment. And I think it's just a matter of a decision based on the clinical pace of his disease and the likelihood of him needing treatment and whether the patient indeed wants to try treatment. So I think you can take home that he's likely to tolerate it and that it's quite possible to suggest a clinical trial of this material. Now, the third drug we didn't talk about was sunitinib and whether indeed it can be given to the elderly patient. I think a lot of the information there comes from clinical experience and it suggests that, yes, you can also treat elderly patients with this agent and one just needs to be aware of its toxicity profile and its potential effects. And so in this patient, what I elected to do was to defer for three months. Right. I think that's a legitimate thing to do. It's best as a physician when you first see an individual to get a sense of what happens 
with his disease? Is it changing rapidly? Is it progressing? Is it something that is going to require treatment in a rapid-fire fashion? Because he didn't have any critical bone areas involved, they were small and uh, were easily controllable with a little bit of Tylenol, it seemed reasonable to make a decision in the future. And so I selected him sort of for observation, if you will, had him come back in three months to get a sense of what his disease is doing. I had the feeling that this may well be very indolent disease and not rapidly progressing. And indeed, on a return visit three months later, repeat imaging confirmed that. Indeed, very little change in his disease. Most of these areas were the same. I think the hardest part is whether the patient accepts this or not, because, you know, if you tell somebody, well, I've got treatments, but we're not going to give them to you, we're going to wait. And I think if you have a willing patient who understands the rationale for this, then it's acceptable. But there's going to be a subset who want treatment, regardless of whatever you say to them, especially if you say, well, I've got some new drugs, they'll want to try them. But I think if the patient is understanding and will follow your instructions with regard to return for follow-up and re-imaging, I think it's legitimate. It reminds me of, you know, the situation in prostate cancer with PSA-only recurrence where, and even actually in primary prostate cancer with a, quote, watch and wait, and the urologists tell us, I don't know if they tell you the same thing, that the patients start out watching and waiting, but they just can't handle it emotionally. How did this man respond to that idea of watching it for a while? So he was reasonably astute and really didn't become terribly anxious or nervous by the concept of watchful waiting, although certainly his family was just the opposite, okay? So I think, and we've all experienced this, where the family members just have a great deal of difficulty accepting this and want to seek other opinions. They just can't understand why grandpa can't get therapy. And that's a normal reaction here. But I think the gentleman himself was quite accepting of this. His disease really didn't progress at three months. At six months, when re-imaged, there was some slight progression, one new site of disease. And at that point, we were a little bit more forceful in suggesting that he could consider therapy at this point in time with an oral agent that probably wouldn't necessarily severely impair his functioning. But and again, you always tell patients the side effect profile of these drugs is sometimes not predictable. Although we think we know what's going to happen, we sometimes really are quite surprised. Some individuals do quite well, even elderly individuals and some younger individuals can't tolerate them. So I did make the suggestion to him that he consider therapy after six months of observation. The therapy I chose for him was what I considered the best available treatment for kidney cancer at that point in time, and that was sunitinib. We used full-dose sunitinib, 50 milligrams. We didn't attenuate the dose. We didn't change the schedule. We went ahead with full dose and schedule of this particular drug, and he had moderately severe side effects. I mean, it wasn't an easy drug for him to take. The major side effect of sunitinib for patients is fatigue, and he certainly experienced that. It did impair his level of functioning. He had grade 2 fatigue and at times almost grade 3 fatigue. It required dose reductions in cycle 1 and in cycle 2. He ultimately ended up taking a dose of 25 milligrams daily for 4 out of 6 weeks, and his best response was a partial response, which lasted approximately 6 months. In terms of the fatigue, did it get better during the two weeks off therapy? It did, and it got better when his dose was reduced. So the main time patients have this fatigue is in the last two weeks of their cycle, and as you start to give them a break off treatment, you may give them a three-week break rather than two-week break, or you may judiciously decrease from 50 to 37.5 to 25. When you reach this point around 37.5 or 25, you start to see more acceptable levels of fatigue. Fatigue doesn't go away. They still experience it, but it's less problematic. It's something that they can learn to live with and learn to manage. Anything new on the mechanism of action of the fatigue or why it happens? 
No. You know, I think the only thing we always caution people is to be certain that the fatigue is related to sunitinib. Always search for other causes. Look for hematologic causes. Is the patient severely anemic? Have they developed the intercurrent hypothyroidism and anything else that might come into play here? But we really don't have a handle on what causes the fatigue with this drug. And anything typical about the fatigue, anything patients say that, you know, is different? No, I didn't find anything different in their descriptions of fatigue with this drug as compared to, for example, interferon. The fatigue is just something that is there. They have difficulty sometimes carrying on normal activities. They have difficulty getting up in the morning. When I have a patient who says, I just can't get out of the chair, I just don't want to get out of the chair, you know, you have to always be concerned whether there's any depressive component here. But generally speaking, these patients, you can tell whether they have a depressed component to their fatigue. And especially if they've not started with it, I think you can generally rule that out. I've not found any medication that effectively alters this fatigue either, no oral medication that helps them overcome this. So what happened at that point when there was progressive disease? So at the time he developed progressive disease, he was on 25 milligrams a day. And what you do in a setting like this in a patient who's off study is, number one, convince yourself that the progression is clinically meaningful. Clinically meaningful means that is it in the context of the pre-existing lesions? Is it resist to find progression? Are there new sites of disease? Generally, since we are trying to control this particular process, rather than cure it in these patients, I have elected to pursue a very gradual approach to declaring progressive disease. In this gentleman, the scan results read progression of his disease. He had a partial response, then his lesions started to enlarge. There weren't any new lesions that one could see, but ultimately they did develop. I tend to continue patients for at least another cycle beyond the progression and always look at the scans. Always do the measurements yourself. Try to convince yourself whether this is a meaningful development in this setting. And in him, despite the fact that he was declared to have progression of his disease at six months. We continued on for another six weeks of therapy, and indeed, he developed some new lesions outside the previously noted ones, and it was time to stop. So because I don't feel that continuation of a drug with potential toxicity profile is reasonable unless you're controlling disease. So the issue for this particular patient now would be what to do in a patient who's developed kinase inhibitor-resistant disease. Should you watch him a little bit longer? Should you continue or consider a second-line therapy. The second-line therapies in this setting would be another kinase inhibitor, such as serafinib, or a drug with a totally different mechanism of action, such as an mTOR inhibitor, such as Timsirlimus. So these are questions we don't have answers to right now. I mean, I think we're all waiting to hear data that will convince us that, for example, you can retreat a patient with serafinib who's failed with sunitinib, but right now we don't have that. The only data that I'm aware of is the Everolimus data that suggests that an mTOR inhibitor may indeed be effective, at least in terms of delaying progression in this particular setting. Everolimus is an oral mTOR inhibitor, not available as yet, likely to be available within this time frame, probably within this next quarter. And the question would be, would an mTOR inhibitor like IV Timsirlimus have the equivalent effects that an oral agent such as Everolimus would? And we don't know that, although many docs now are applying that kind of line of reasoning in this particular setting. How about Bev or Bev interferon in this situation? I have even less data for that particular combination, although that would be an option to consider. I mean, 
there are groups in Europe who would use interferon in this particular setting where a patient has failed frontline sunitinib. In my mind, I would consider a second-line therapy. We looked at our data for patients who had failed kinase inhibitors up front, sunitinib and serafinib, and received timsorolimus. Their median progression-free survival was in the range of four months. We saw no responses. It's hard to interpret the data at this point in time. I don't know whether that's a drug effect that's better than one would see with a placebo or not. I suspect it is, and that one might see the same thing with timsorolimus that you see with everolimus, but it really is not known. I think if you were looking for a second agent to treat a patient with at this point in time and had only access to bevacizumab, to timsorolimus, or to serafinib, my second choice would be a drug with a different mechanism of action like timsorolimus at this point. Not based on necessarily any data, just based on the fact that you very often would like to use a different approach in this setting. And if the everolimus data hold true with other drugs, then indeed that would be the right thing to do. So what happened with this man? So he was given timsorolimus for a period of five months, intravenous drug once weekly. The drug's easy to tolerate, actually. It's not that difficult even for an elderly patient to take timsorolimus 25 milligrams intravenously once weekly. He didn't have any response. His disease was stable and then gradually progressed. At the end of his timsorolimus treatment, he was 79 years old. He chose to hold therapy for a while and to sort of forego treatment at that point. The one thing that we did recognize was that his bone disease had slowly progressed, and during the period of treatment with these agents, he was ultimately put on Zometa also as a way to try to decrease the ultimate morbidity of a skeletal disease. So that was an added drug that was utilized in him. So what was the final outcome? He died after a period of about 20 months. It had progression of his disease, and did we accomplish anything for a man like this? Well, Perhaps median survival for patients with advanced kidney cancer probably is in the range of 14 months for interferon. Right now, we think it's somewhere between 20 and 25 months for the kinase inhibitors. So perhaps he had a legitimate effect of these drugs. We would like to think so at this point in time. It's hard to say that we had any effect on symptoms because we really didn't recognize any change in his symptom profile at this point. Let's talk a little bit about your 60-year-old patient. The other patient I'd like to talk to you today about is a 60-year-old gentleman who presented with what we call synchronous metastatic disease. This is a presentation where the primary tumor is in place and the patient has metastatic disease. These patients often present with symptoms. They commonly have large flank masses. They have pain in their tumors. They have fatigue. And in the past, we thought this presentation pattern represented about 25 to 30 percent of patients with advanced kidney cancer. That's changing now. The use of imaging procedures in patients who have various abdominal symptoms has turned up a very high frequency of solitary renal masses that are asymptomatic. And urologists have aggressively pursued many of those renal masses. So we're seeing fewer patients now with the presentation that I'm describing to you, and that is large renal tumor, widespread disease. I would estimate probably in the range of about 10% of patients now have this presentation, but it still is an issue. We still face it, and the issue for these patients is several fold. Number one, you have a patient with a large primary tumor that's very often symptomatic. It may have the occurrence of hematuria. It may be painful. Many of these patients have systemic symptoms, fatigue, weakness, fever. And in a setting like that, The issue of what to do initially is one that's fairly easy. In another patient where the tumor may well be smaller, where they have no symptoms in their primary tumor but still have metastatic disease, the issue is less clear. The issue I'm talking about is whether one should remove the primary tumor before proceeding with therapy. 
Five years ago, after the Southwest Oncology Group and the EORTC published their results in a study in which nephrectomy was followed by interferon and was compared to interferon alone, it seemed like the role of nephrectomy in a patient like this was well established. No questions asked. Can you go through what was seen in that study? The study randomized patients to either nephrectomy followed by interferon versus interferon. All patients had metastatic disease. The number of patients in the two studies was somewhere around 350. And what was seen was that response rates were low in both arms, but survivals were different. The patients who had nephrectomy followed by interferon had a median survival of in the range of 11 to 12 months, whereas the interferon alone arm had a median survival of eight months or less. So there was about a three-month differential in survival. That was the first demonstration that taking out a primary tumor in a patient with advanced metastatic disease could ultimately be therapeutic and result in improvement in outcome, at least in terms of survival. Not everybody was convinced, but certainly the two studies really sort of set the standard, if you will, for the use of, we call it, debulking nephrectomy in this particular setting. The procedure was then utilized sort of routinely, I think. And what we're facing now is whether we should continue to do this in the era where we have different treatments. Now, interferon is not a very effective or potent drug in the treatment of kidney cancer. In contrast, a drug like sunitinib, you have a fairly high regression rate, 40 or 50 percent effects on progression-free survival and survival. So folks are now asking, well, is this data true? Should we continue to do a debulking nephrectomy if we're going to treat a patient with sunitinib, for example, and will it have the same effect? Well, we don't know. I mean, I think the answer to the question is that perhaps the most reasonable thing is to continue the same paradigm that we established before, and that is to assume, although it is without data, to assume that removal of the primary tumor followed by treatment will be the most efficacious way of proceeding. Now, is there any data that bear on this particular topic? Well, this fellow that I'm talking about was 60 years old. He had a 10-centimeter renal mass. Certainly, if you treated him with an agent such as sunitinib, it's likely that you'd see some effect on the primary renal tumor with some decrease in size. About a third of the patients who have been studied with large primary tumors in place and who have been treated with a drug like sunitinib have had responses in their primary tumors, but two-thirds do not. So I think we have to keep in mind that it's not necessarily a given that his mass will respond. And patients with symptoms from their tumors benefit a great deal from removal of that symptomatic tumor so that it seems reasonable in a setting where this is a very large tumor to still consider the use of debulking nephrectomy as a standard, even if you're going to utilize a kinase inhibitor such as sunitinib as your systemic therapy. On the other hand, if you have a patient with a small tumor, let's say it's five centimeters and he has metastatic disease, that tumor is asymptomatic, is it legitimate to postpone a decision about removal of that primary tumor and get on with systemic therapy? I think in that setting, it probably is. I think one can have the option of holding the decision about an nephrectomy and treat the patient with a systemic drug such as sunitinib and see what their response is. And then if indeed you've had a favorable response, reconsider the issue at a later date. In this particular patient, it was easy because he had widespread disease, large tumor with symptoms. He underwent a debulking nephrectomy and was ultimately treated with sunitinib, but it's not always clear. What kind of nephrectomy did he have? 
he had an open nephrectomy. I mean, it was an abdominal approach. This was a larger tumor. Now, you could do this under laparoscopic control if you have a surgeon, neurologist with sufficient experience. But in this particular setting, it was just removal of the tumor, not necessarily lymph node dissection, but purely a removal of the tumor for control of symptoms. In this situation, what determines whether it's going to be done laparoscopically, the size? The size, the experience of the surgeon. I would very often suggest to my surgeons that if possible, you can do this under laparoscopic control because it's always easier. The patient gets out of the hospital quicker, has fewer postoperative problems. But I think that's going to depend upon the experience of the treating surgeon. But even these large tumors can be removed laparoscopically now. They've really moved the envelope with this particular approach. And how did he do in the sunitinib? With sunitinib, he had sort of a partial response, if you will, of the majority of his disease. It wasn't a major response. Let's say his resist criteria suggested that the tumors had decreased somewhere around 25%. So there was some control of his disease, and it lasted about eight months. He ultimately developed progression of his illness, and he had a lot of disease in the lung, and ultimately progressed to the lung and lymph nodes and went on to secondary therapy. So how long did he live from the time you first saw him? His survival from the time of therapy would be 24 months. And sort of looking back on this sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, in retrospect, do you think that it really was beneficial for him to have this surgery? I think no doubt that it was. My decision process is, number one, somebody with symptoms from their primary tumor I always request my surgeons to consider doing a nephrectomy, whether it's laparoscopic or open. And I think in this patient, that indeed was the case. So I think he benefited from that. I think you'll see that if you leave primary tumors in place and even try to treat them with systemic therapy, even though it's more efficacious than it was five or 10 years ago, these are less than optimal responses. You ultimately end up considering removal of that tumor at some point in the future.